With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. And here are your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. We're doing something a little bit differently this time. My name is Nina Pantic and I'm joined by Irina Falcone, a current WHA pro who happens to be one of my best friends. This is our first time doing a podcast together and we're really excited to talk about Wimbledon, which was obviously a crazy fortnight that just closed up. Irina, how's it going? Hey guys, appreciate you guys joining us today and listening to our first time podcast, so please no judgment. So let's just start off with all the different grass events that are leading up to it. I personally played Surbiton, Ilkley, and Wimbledon qualifying. So let's just start off with Surbiton. Absolutely beautiful tournament. It's a 100K level tournament. It's not a WTA, followed by Ilkley. And I got to say, the court difference between Surbiton and Ilkley was just, I can't even describe it. Yeah, my the, biggest question with, with grass is, like, the difference in people see Wimbledon grass and, like, oh, it's so beautiful, it's so perfect. But then, like, all the, the, the grass changes with each passing day. And, like, we don't see other tournaments that much, like other grass. So, like, talk a little bit about the differences and the bounces and how it's kind of an equalizer. It's not, like, it's beautiful, it's pretty, but it's not really a very easy surface to play on, right? Absolutely not. Like I told you earlier, I think it's so beautiful to see on the screen. You're like, oh my gosh, that's so great. It must be like that all the time, but really it's not. Center corn at Wimbledon is probably the best thing you're gonna get in the world. Uh, I played it last year and I gotta tell you, it was the best experience I've had on a grass court. There really weren't any weird bounces, nothing out of the ordinary, but I played a tournament in Oakley and every single player that I spoke to actually said they weren't going to it this year because of the bounces were just that bad if you can actually believe that um but yeah it's it's one of those things with the game that i play i actually really love the weird bounces because they just suit me for some crazy reason i actually love the weird bounces it works with my slice um but yeah i i think that it can be a love-hate relationship i got a little better this year but I think it's just a continued love relationship with the grass with me. And when it comes to like playing on grass though, it's such a short season. How like I find it really impossible that these players are preparing for this it's a month long, maybe less, maybe someone's only playing a tournament and it's so brief. Is it so brief because, you know, no one really wants to play on grass? Is it so brief because it costs a lot or is it because the weather in England is terrible? But there's Mallorca, so it doesn't really make any sense. Like what's the what's the issue? I think that it's a combination of everything that you just mentioned. You have someone like Rafa Nadal who was actually practicing on the Halle courts day after he won French Open. You have some crazy guys like that that have no problem just transitioning. But I will tell you right now, it's very different to go from clay to grass just on the body. You use different muscles. You get low so much 
you get so much lower on the grass courts. Obviously, I'm very short, so I don't have to get that much lower. But I have to admit that I think the weather is probably the biggest concern for why there aren't enough for why they aren't enough um, grass court tournaments after French. And I spoke to a Fed Cup captain, actually, and Kiathavon, and she told me that the reason why there aren't more grass court events after Wimbledon is because it's not in the budget. So I, I straight up asked her, I said, why aren't there more grass court events? Me and Allison Riss, we were saying we just wish that six months of the year we could play grass, but it's just not the case because of the weather, and because of how much work is needed to maintain a grass court. And you mean like the LTA budget, so in, in England? Yes. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's something people really don't know. As much as like fans of the game are like, wow, grass is so awesome. Like it's really tough and complicated, far more than, than we see. And then at Wimbledon, I mean, the first week, like the top 10 women all were knocked out. And like in my head, I was thinking, well, it's because it's grass and it's just so unpredictable. But how did you see that? To be honest, it's just a, it's just a matter of the sport. I mean, the sport is just so tricky. Anyone, I'm going to go ahead and say anybody that bets on sports is probably not getting their money's worth because you just have no idea what's going to happen. You have one day where you just go out there and you're feeling great and you beat a top seed. You have other days where you lose to a girl that's outside top 500. So you just have to go out there with the intention that any day is a given day. And to see that all the top 10 players lost, I mean, just goes to show how how much opportunity is out there for players. I think it, it was much of a shocker for all the betters out there and for the fans that were wanting their top 10 player to win. But I think it just goes to show that on any given day, anybody can beat anyone. It's pretty insane, though. Like, I thought it was a lot of fun to watch just to see other names come out and other, other players have their chance, their moment in the sun. But I can also see how people were upset. But everyone always says in the men's, you know, how the top 100 or top 300 is so deep and anyone can beat anyone. But no one ever really says that about the women. So I think it was kind of a big show for the women to, to really see anyone can win. And then obviously seeding, like number 11 seed one. So, I mean, in the end, maybe she just missed that curse by, by a spot. Kerber came out with the victory. Yeah. And the fact that Serena, I mean, I can't even yeah. begin to talk about that. The fact that we were actually having conversations about whether or not she was going to be seated and all this talk. I mean, she's, what's she today? 28. So to think that that was an actual conversation before Wimbledon is crazy to to know that she went and she made that jump and we don't have to worry about her being seated anymore. Yeah, it's honestly, it's a relief, but 28 still seems so low, and, and I, th I thought when it came out 25, I was surprised they seated her at all, and I thought it was great, but a lot of people were upset, and people were saying, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's unfair treatment because, like, Azarenka wasn't seated, or, you know, other players that came back from having kids, but it's got to start somewhere, and, and I think it's a great place to start. Why not start with Serena? Like, why not start the greatest in the world? Why not have her be the one that kickstart this, you know, maternity leave stuff? It makes sense to me. It does make sense, and I will admit I had a lot of people come up to me and say that it is ridiculous for a player to come back and be seated uh, after being gone for so long. But at the end of the day, you're talking about Serena Williams here, greatest of all time, undoubtedly, no questions asked. She's an amazing tennis player. She's an amazing athlete. So I love the fact that Wimbledon just went ahead and we're like, you know what, we're going to seed, seed her as we see fit. And they did, and it turned out well for her. 
Yeah, turned out, I mean, almost perfectly. She's definitely the story of the fortnight, even though, I mean, Angelique Kerber did beat her for her for her third Grand Slam, and it was an incredible accomplishment for her. Kind of a lopsided final, three and three. But at the end of the day, like, it was still, even though Kerber won, like, to me, this fortnight was all about Serena. And, like, I don't know how players see her, but from my perspective, like, she, when she's playing a tournament, she's just so, like, clinical and so businesslike. And even on a press, she's so serious and very, like, Close like like a closed book. You get nothing out of her. Even this fortnight, she didn't want her coach Patrick talking to the media. And then on the flip side, I got I open up her Snapchat or on her Instagram where I watched that HBO docu series, and I'm like being brought into the OR with her, watching her give birth, watching her struggle, watching her coach being upset with her for being too heavy. And it's just like so contradictory and confusing for me. And obviously, I don't know her. I don't know if you know her, but I'm just wondering, like, as a player, your perspective of like her as a kind of as like she's always saying I'm being Serena like what does that mean to you I think that you have a lot to say when you described her as business like you can just tell by the way she does her handshake afterwards I don't know if you've ever noticed that it's a lot of players usually go for a full-on handshake followed by a tap but a lot of times she just shakes your hand like if she's just meeting you for the first time. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. But every time I see that, I'm like, all right, I guess, you know, she just came out here, did her job, and is going out and taking care of her daughter after that, which I think is just fantastic. It really gives a lot of inspiration to the moms out there that you really can't achieve anything. And granted, she is Serena Williams, and being Serena is what she does every single day, just taking care of business. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible to be a part of a, a part of her story, but it's also just so challenging to figure out, you know, what to ask her when I, when I'm in the press room. I'm just like not intimidated, but just I just feel like I'm not going to get anything out of her, and it's just so it's just it's just an insane thing to be a part of, and it's obviously an honor to to watch her play and watch her win, but it's just so challenging, I guess is the word I'm going for, and I'm sure some journalists would agree with me. Um, but then but then she also has spoken out about a bunch of stuff, which is awesome. Like for, you know, they had the whole thing where they moved the match back. Her final was pushed back because the Novak and Nadal match took so long after the Anderson um, Isner match took literally six and a half hours and pretty much destroyed the whole day. And she was perfectly, you know, honestly, like she was just so honest about it. She said like it was like a needed evil that had to happen and it's just fine. But a lot of people on Twitter and a lot of fans, a lot of, you know, obviously commentators were flipping out about this. Did you think that pushing it back was okay? I don't even understand why they would think that they have any say whatsoever. It had to happen. She, yeah. she couldn't have said it any better. It, it, it just had to happen. Obviously, they had to stop the match for uh, Novak and... And the doll for the curfew. Which sucked as well. Absolutely. But the fact that people actually went ahead and were like, oh my gosh, they shouldn't have done this. Really? What, What else could have been the other option? There was absolutely nothing else they could have done. Yeah, I thought I thought it was the right play, and I mean, it obviously it was terrible for for Novak and Nadal to have to come back. But honestly, like they kind of picked up right where they left off without any problems, and it was an incredible match. But again, like that match went on for past, you know, that this final set tiebreaker that became this massive conversation. Both Isner and Anderson were like, "Dudes, it's time for a final set tiebreak." And as a writer, I definitely want one because it's exhausting and it's impossible. And how do you even write a story when a match is, you know, 26, 24 in the fifth set? I don't even know what to say about that besides the only thing that matters is the last two games. In this case, definitely it was Anderson's lefty forehand shot and then him serving it out. And that was pretty much all that mattered in six and a half hours of chaos. 
Mm-hmm. What do you think? Do you want a, a final set tiebreak? Do you prefer it? To be honest, there's a lot of people that disagree with the whole thing. They're like, you know, a true fans going to stay out there and witness it all. Honestly, at the end of the day, you just have to think about the well-being of the players. It's just not healthy to be out there that long and to come back and deliver two days later for a final. I understand that these guys are going out and above and beyond with their fitness and how they take care of their bodies. But to be able to go and play at that high level and just bring it back less than 48 hours later, that's just incredible. And I think that there should be a change. I don't know if we're going to see it in the immediate future. And uh, if we're being entirely honest, like I would probably say that U.S. Open got a lot of flack for not having a advantage set in the fifth. So you have one side of it where it's like, hey, you know what? These players were born to do this. They can go ahead and last a distance. On the other side of it, what are the fans thinking after just sitting there for six and a half hours and just watching these guys duke it out? And you have to admit, their fitness level at six hours into a match is not going to be the same. It's not going to be the same tennis that you're getting an hour into the match. So you have to also think about that. I just don't think I have any right or anything to say in the aspect because one, I'm not six foot nine, two, I'm not a guy, and three, I've never played a three out of five set. So I don't know whether a fan would want to watch a women's three out of five match. So do we you shall see. Do you, have you ever walked into or gone into a third set on one of these slams, not the US Open, and been like, wow, like this could just not end? Or does that not really cross your mind because women aren't the biggest servers, obviously? It's never really crossed my mind because, yes, I'm not, I don't have the biggest serve. And if we're being honest, girls return much better uh, than they serve, in my opinion, unless you're talking about the top players who rely on their serve. Um, but, yeah, I think most of the time girls know that it's, somebody's going to win this sooner or later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's different. It's different. And then obviously best of five in the men's is still going on. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. But again, from my perspective, like I find it just, it's so cool to see these matches and these sagas and these epics, like, you know, the Del Po Nadal match is another classic. The Del, um, the Novak Nadal match. I mean, all these like five setters are, are the classics, are the ones people talk about. But again, like from a working standpoint, from a commentating, from a scheduling, from a fan, it's just kind of like, it would be kind of great if these things could wrap up in two and a half hours or less. Not going to lie, I love to just watch the highlights. I don't really want to sit down and watch the entire thing. It kind of turns into a bit of a baseball thing where I'm like, this is never going to end, and I'm just going to be sitting here for eight hours. But tennis, honestly, it has its traditions and its pros and cons, and people are going to talk about this in circles, but I have a feeling that because Anderson and Isner both spoke out so quickly, obviously they were dead exhausted against it. Like I kind of of think there's a chance of it changing in the deciding tiebreak, not best of three sets, obviously. I think that with enough pressure from the top players, there will be some change. And the fact that Isner and John, the fact that Isner and Kevin were both so adamant about the change, I think that there's definitely something brewing. Who knows? Maybe there will be something like a 12-all. I know that John mentioned something. After 12-all, there should be something. But who knows if that's the lucky number. Is there some traditions at Wimbledon that, like, you've been a part of? You know, I know that there's some silly stuff, like the towels. Is it that the – this is a completely random question, but the the Wimbledon women's towels change the design each year, but the men's don't? Is that true? All I know is that there was one year where 
I was playing doubles and I actually got asked for it back. I had my towel on my chair and all of a sudden one of the groundsmen were looking at me and he said, excuse me, we're going to need that towel back. And at first I thought he was joking because I was like, this is gold right here. You can't take this away from me. This is all I have to take with me. And he politely asked, and I said, oh, I'll give it to them inside. And I went ahead and took my towel because that is really the most important thing that you have at Wimbledon. And uh, my, I, I try and get a men's towel, but uh, I wouldn't be able to tell you if the design has changed. I know that the design does change a little bit for the, for the women. and I guess I meant the color, but, I mean, either way. It just seems like it's always a little bit – and it's definitely different than the men's anyway which is weird. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that the color does change every year. Yeah. Yeah, I was just wondering about, I don't know, I feel like people, again, like same with the differences in grass, like people watch these tournaments from so far removed and like there's so many little things that go on that like we don't know about, you know, things. And I mean, have you ever played when you walked on center court, you know, what, what would you even describe that experience? Is that like your highlight compared to playing, I know you played on Ash, and I know you played Venus Williams on Ash, and that's also absolutely insane. So, like, you played Kerber, wasn't it, at Wimbledon? Yes, I played oh. Azarenka court one, uh, and then I played Kerber last year in center court. And I remember I was so nervous when I played Azarenka. I forgot my grass shoes, which have little, I wouldn't even be able to describe them, they're called little pimples underneath the shoes. And I forgot them, and I had to sprint from Arangi all the way to the women's locker room, which is completely opposite ends of the facility. And then I had a French Open Babolat bag on the court, and they actually had to put a towel on top of it because you couldn't have anything saying French Open. And it was the most nerve-wracking thing I think I've ever experienced. And for some reason last year, for Kerber, I was a little more relaxed. I had a very nice lady come up to me the day before my match, and she was like, Irina, would you like to take, uh, do, would you like to do a rehearsal walk to the court? And I was like, are you kidding me? We're doing a rehearsal walk. I've never heard of this. So we walked onto the court and it was the first time I had seen it. It had no net. It had, it was just freshly painted and there was not one person in the stadium. It was a very, very cool experience. And then last year I made sure to have my headphones on so I couldn't really hear anything. But it was the coolest thing. The second it struck 1 p.m., we were walking out. Wimbledon, I will say, they are very keen on being on time. So I very much appreciated it. That's so. That's absolutely incredible that you played this year's Wimbledon champion last year on center court. Like That's one of the coolest things I think I've heard. Yeah. It was uh, at first when I saw the draw... It was funny. A lot of girls were telling me because I was in the qualifiers last year and before my match and after my match, they were like, oh, come on, you have to qualify. You're going to get that Kerber spot. And I was like, can't you give me Kerber like third round, fourth round? But now I got her first round, which ended up being a battle of a match. It was a great match, great experience, something that I'll treasure forever. But yeah, I love that she went ahead and won it this year. It makes me feel good about my loss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's just, it's just I did crazy connecting those two dots and seeing that. I mean, that's just, that's just a, fun, a fun fact, I guess, about you now. 
And then, Absolutely. yeah, we've talked, we've talked plenty about um, this, these five set sagas, but then Djokovic won the men's final in straight sets, kind of dispatched a tired Kevin Anderson. I'm not remotely surprised by that at all, but it's kind of like anticlimactic. I think both finals were a little anticlimactic, but like the Djokovic one, his son coming on court, like I think saved the day, or coming on the, the in the stands, whatever, saved the day because it was so cute. But you've had an injury before, and a lot of, obviously, pretty much every tennis player is going to be injured at some point, and he had... Um, this elbow injury that took him out for six months and before he was calling it a minor medical procedure and then now he's calling it a surgery is it like a mental thing where he maybe didn't want everyone to know how injured he was like their players or the media is that something that crosses a player's mind are they worried that people will be like oh he's so injured or he's trying to be like oh I was actually really really more injured than you guys thought I was like I I, I don't know I think you bring up a good point I actually didn't know about that yeah. Hey, you know what? If it was surgery, good for him. I think anything that goes into your skin is arguably a surgery. So whatever he was doing before, the minor medical procedure was a surgery. But I kind of find the choice of words just, I mean, is it something you guys, when you're injured, do you try and hide it? Are you are you trying to protect yourself from the players and the media? Or are you just, no. I don't think it's a matter of hiding it. I think it's more just for your own sake. You just try and just blow it off almost. It's like, oh, I actually broke my elbow. Mm. No, it's just a minor little injury I have on my elbow. Or I rolled my ankle. Oh, I just slipped. It's not too bad. I'll be fine in two weeks. I think a lot of times it's just mind games. You try and just think that you're tougher than you really are. And, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if you were just, you know what? They don't need to know everything about what's going on with my body. At the end of the day, it's his career. So, I think that maybe, yeah, he was like, you know what? I'm going to keep this one close to my heart, and if I go ahead and do really well, then maybe I'll say something. But I, I honestly, I thought that his son really did steal the show, though. Oh, so Just, good. So cute. So cute. It was incredible. And I know that Federer had his kids out last year. I guess if you're under five, you can't be in the box during the match. I mean, it kind of makes sense. And then totally. his kids were under five when they came out, and they stole the show. And now it's 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 Novak's kid doing it, and I thought it was incredible. And I really enjoyed it. And he also kind of said, like, oh, you know, I didn't want to talk about this before, but now I can. Like, he was a really big motivation. I really wanted to win in front of him when he knows what I'm doing, and, and he's old enough to really understand. Well, he might not quite be, but three is he's walking he's talking so he might know, have an idea he's got to get a sense and he'll have those photos and it was just one of those things where i was like that would be a great motivation and now serena has it so maybe she's going to hang around absolutely i think that's got to just be a moment that you can't even describe whether you're the kid or whether you're the parent to see them watching you do what you love i can't imagine there being a better feeling for either for either parent or child yeah, it's just one of those things that I think, again, we were just lucky to witness, and it was lucky that he, he was there and that Novak was just, honestly, he was kind of a different person with talking about his son and, and interacting with him. I was like, there was just the two of them on center court. It was one of those wild moments. It was a beautiful one, absolutely. And you've you've won a WTA title before and, and tournaments before, and, you know, Novak, obviously, you know, he had to win seven matches in a row. Do you, when you guys think about, like, looking back at a tournament you've won, does it take a lot of of luck things to fall into place is it routine is it a test of stamina like just the concept of like winning a tournament from a player perspective oh my god there are so many things that go into it i think that the stars definitely do have to be aligned uh when i won my wta title i didn't have a coach with me and i happened to have my boyfriend with me and 
he didn't go on the court one time as my on-court coach, and he was just supporting me from the stands. And just like you said, there was a moment once I won my final, which you actually took a picture of, and it was him and I just hugging each other. And it's a moment you can't describe. Winning a title, whether it's a 100K, a 50K, 25K, or a Grand Slam, that feeling of winning, it just goes to show that all the work that you've put in is coming together and everything that you sacrificed, you know, was worth it for that moment. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why people play is for that very special moment of feeling that you accomplished something. Yeah. I mean, you, you see it in their, in their face. I mean, I remember watching you win that title, obviously on online, but you see it in their faces. You see it in like the way that they kind of, it's almost like a relief. It's almost like it's a, it's a mixture. It's just one of the most insane things in sport. It's, it's just so great. And, you know, obviously we cannot talk about Wimbledon without talking about Federer's loss. Um, uh, just obviously devastating for him. But, you know, Anderson had never won a set off of him and then beats him this in this marathon five-setter. Were you shocked? Was every, I mean, everyone was shocked. Everyone that was anyone was shocked. I'm not taking anything away from Kevin. But to know that Federer had a match point, he totally had a match point and he blew it. And uh, granted, like I said, Kevin played spectacular tennis, uh, but yeah, I was definitely hurting. I'm a huge Federer fan, so when I saw that, we were following the match, actually, while we were practicing, and I can tell you right now, I was not totally focused on that practice because I was very focused on that score line. So, yeah, I felt for Fed. A lot of people that I spoke to told me that that was their pick. So... The fact that Novak came back after not winning a slam for two years, that's just huge. Got to give him props. But, yeah, I was definitely hurting for, for Federer. Yeah, Federer was my pick as well, but I'm famously bad at picking anything <laughs> when it comes to predictions. And then do you think Federer will win Wimbledon again? I mean, he's he, – I think he'll be back for sure next year. So, I mean, it's definitely possible. He did say that he's going to be back next year. That was one of his quotes. He hopes to be back next year. And, yeah, I mean, why not? I think that if he takes care of his body and continues choosing his schedule so wisely and he knows where he does best, I mean, hey, why not? Yeah, it's hard It's hard to count him out. I definitely learned not to ever count him out. And Absolutely. then looking ahead, you know, how does it feel? You finish a Grand Slam, you obviously – look forward to Wimbledon or the U.S. Open or, or whichever Grand Slam it is for so long and train trying to peek at these tournaments. How does it feel after? You kind of, are you deflated? A lot of these players are on vacation. They're, they're posting all these insane Instagram photos. They're having the time of their lives for maybe a couple of days, maybe a week. And then it just resets. It's just back to work, the grind again. It's funny you say that because I believe that the perfect word is deflated. After coming back and being at the most prestigious tournament in the world, arguably in the world. You just come back, and I remember last year, I had gone from center court at Wimbledon to a 60K in California where we had to have a one water bottle a day ration, and the bathroom was in a porta potty. And there were a few other things that I just, I couldn't believe the transition of going from center court to the 60K level. And that's for all the fans out there that just see Wimbledon and they're like, oh my gosh, that's what it must be like every single week. But 
I promise you that it's not. If you're not on the WTA tour consistently, it's not all glamour every single week. I promise you. Yeah, that's something people definitely overlook and don't realize. And they, and they don't even realize things that, like, Wimbledon qualifying isn't even in the same place. It's in, like, Roehampton. Like, you're not even – it's just so – there's so many differences in level and so many differences in, in each week to week. It's, it's insane. The amount of differences between Roehampton, Wimbledon qualifying – Compared to Wimbledon main draw, I can't even begin to tell you the differences. Uh, one of them alone being you only get a ride to the airport if you're in Wimbledon main draw. Wow. Yeah. So by all means, I will admit when you get to Wimbledon, there is no better feeling once you've qualified and they give you that new credential. But yeah, I think, like you said, deflated is definitely the word. A lot of players decided to go and vacation because they know two months, three months in Europe is a grind. Anywhere that you're living from your suitcase and you're just going week to week from hotel to hotel, after that, you need a little R&R. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense. And I mean, I'm, I'm jealous of, I'm envious of their lives most of the time, but especially when they're on these yachts and on these beaches. But they have so little time between the grass court and the U.S. hardcore swing. You know, it's just like, it's just small little... A little bit of time there for them. And speaking of time, I think that's uh, that's pretty much it for us with Tennis.com podcast for this episode. We've covered a ton of Wimbledon topics, and you know now the tour will, for the most part, be turning to the hard courts in the U.S. swing. So we're going to try and come back to you guys with another episode. Um, thank you guys for joining us. Irina, thank you so much for being part of this. Thanks, guys, and hopefully we'll see you for episode two. Yeah, and also please remember to subscribe and leave us a review. Any kind of review is helpful. And we have this podcast available on iTunes and SoundCloud, pretty much everywhere that you subscribe to podcasts, as well as tennis.com and baseline.tennis.com. And this has been Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. You can find me on Twitter at NinaPantic1, the number one. And you can find Irina on Twitter and Instagram at Irina Falcone. She nailed the best possible username for that. Very original. I'm very impressed. Okay, thank you guys. Thanks. Bye. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.